Well, this morning I was going to ask you to turn to Matthew 27. I was going to say we were going to be talking about Christ and His death on the cross on our behalf, and I thought that would be rather glorious, and I thought it would be great, and we would talk about the hope that we have because Christ died in our place. But then I went to the Christian bookstore, and I thumbed through a few books published by reputable Christian, Christian publishers like Zondervan and InterVarsity. And after thumbing through some of those books, I, I find myself at this point second-guessing myself, wondering, should we really talk about Christ dying for us and bearing the judgment of God on our behalf? find myself wondering if maybe we should just stop our study of the gospel according to Matthew with him dying. Because I learned from those modern sages in those books that I thumbed through that the substitutionary death of Christ is, among other things, irrelevant, distasteful, having ill effects on the church, having little to offer the global church and mission, too violent for Christians, encouraging selfish individualistic abuses of power, the great distortion, and last but not least, cosmic child abuse. In this light, shall we continue? After all, who, who wants to be perceived as such a fool as that? How foolish it would be for us to talk about something irrelevant or something distasteful, or something having ill effects on the church, or even more foolish. Who wants to focus on the great distortion, as they call it? And certainly, who wants to talk about cosmic child abuse? How foolish that would be. Wait a minute. I'm having a profound thought. A profound thought is coming to my mind. And the profound thought is, Regardless of what the modern evangelical sages are saying, how about this? Let's open our Bibles. Let's open our Bibles to see if God were to agree about what Christ has done. Is it irrelevant? Is it bringing damage to the church? Is it cosmic child abuse? Please open your Bible with me. Open your Bible with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, all sarcastic Introductions aside, let's see what God would have to say about these things regardless of so-called human wisdom that is so vogue in our day. Let's see. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, The word of the cross is foolishness. Oh, so in a sense the Bible's agreeing with these published authors, but keep reading to those who are perishing. It is foolishness, but it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But please see that it goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So on second thought, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 27 and let's see the greatness of Christ and the great magnificence of Christ dying, a substitutionary death, dying in our place, so that He could, in fact, 
satisfy the just wrath of God on our behalf, even if it's not the trendiest thing in evangelicalism, we will see that it is great and it is glorious and it is magnificent and it is the very heart, it is the very sum and substance of Christianity itself. I can't wait to talk about this this morning. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I couldn't wait to talk about this. To the point where I was so sick that I didn't think I could do it. And so uh, Molly called Eric Raymond and said, you know what, it's not looking good. But I said, be sure to tell him that if he gets a call at 6 in the morning on Sunday, that I am preaching because I'm dying to preach this passage. Jeremiah talked about God's word inside of him and he said it's like fire in his bones. Well, I've had some burning bones for a couple of weeks because I love Jesus Christ. I love him more than life itself. Christians love Jesus Christ. And as we will see, the very heart of Christianity, the the very essence of everything that is Christian and everything that is Christ is Christ giving himself for us. And especially in light of the constant threat that that is under makes me want to preach it all the more as a pastor and talk about it all the more as a pastor well we will look at Matthew 27 today and we will look at verses 45 through 50 in particular where we will look at two cries of Jesus two cries of Jesus that say so much about so much that it takes the rest of the Bible to explain them So this is going to be a long sermon. (laughs) It's not going to be that long of a sermon, but but that is true. These cries tell us so much about so much that literally the rest of the New Testament is given to unpacking the meaning of what's happening here to Christ. Remember, in case you're just joining us, and I know it's been a while, that we've seen Christ in His earthly ministry throughout Matthew's Gospel, and we've seen that He has perfectly submitted to His Father's will. He's obeyed God's law perfectly. We've seen that Christ has shown Himself to be gracious and kind to people even who others are not gracious and kind to. We've seen His love shown on so many different occasions. We've been drawn to Him. There's no way you can really keep from being drawn to Him and His greatness and His His grace. But we've also seen that Christ has been rejected. He's been rejected even by the religious leaders. He's been rejected by the governing authorities to such a degree where they have executed Him. They have crucified Him. But today we're going to see a rejection that is altogether different. That's not even really comparable. Because we're going to see that Jesus on the cross is rejected by His Father as He is dying in our place. And there's really nothing more significant than that and nothing more moving than that. Let's go ahead and look at the first cry. And we'll spend almost all of our time on the first one. The first cry of Jesus that tells us so much about so much that it takes the rest of the Bible to explain it. And we begin in verse 45. Before we get to the cry, it tells us something about nature. If you look with me, you'll see there that it says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. From noon until 3 p.m., it's under the shroud of darkness. 
And we're probably wasting our breath and wasting our minds if we're trying to figure out how, naturalistically speaking, this occurred. It's irrelevant. That's why Matthew doesn't talk about it. God may very well have used some sort of natural thing to to happen right then and there to make everything dark. But that wouldn't be the point. The point is, however God chose to work it, it happened right then. So as Jesus is on the cross, strategically, God sends darkness over all the land. Well, if we're reading this text, remember Matthew was a Jew, so he's relying even upon his understanding of the Old Testament. We learn in the Old Testament that oftentimes darkness is associated with judgment. Not always, but this unique darkness that's out of the ordinary is oftentimes associated with judgment, and that seems to be the case here. Listen to Amos chapter 8, verse 9, which I don't believe is talking about this event, but you get the flavor. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. It's associated with this apocalyptic judgment from God. And there are other examples in the Old Testament as well. I think that's what's going on here. Certainly, the people, Israel, they're being judged in a sense because they've rejected the Messiah. But more specifically, Jesus is on the cross being rejected by His Father. Judgment on the Son. Darkness. So keeping in mind that there is this eerie cloud of darkness over everything, it has everyone's attention. Let's keep reading. Verse 46 says, About the ninth hour, 3 p.m., under the cover of darkness, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what do we say? Well, what could we say? I suppose we could say that is astonishing. That is astonishing with a capital A, a bolded A, an italicized A, an underlined A, an A with an exclamation point. This is astounding. And what I would like to do for the next several minutes is talk about why. Why, when we hear the cry of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would we say, that is absolutely astounding? Let me give you all kinds of reasons. It's astounding because of who Jesus is. We learned at the very first chapter in Matthew that Jesus is born of a, what? He's born of a virgin. Two times in Matthew chapter 1, it emphasizes that, that that Mary is even to be kept a virgin until after Jesus is born. That is to say, He is uniquely protected from the effects of the fall. If we were to go to Hebrews chapter 4, we would say that it explicitly says, Hebrews 4.15, without sin. Keep thinking, if you would. He's saying, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the wrath of God. He's sinless. There's no way he should be experiencing the wrath of God. At least on the surface. Jesus is holy. Jesus is God's beloved son. Listen to Matthew 17.5 when God the Father says, This is my beloved son in whom I am what? 
well pleased. The Father has said publicly from heaven, I am well pleased with Him. He's my Son. So it's astounding when the Father is judging the Son because He's pleased with the Son. The Son didn't do anything wrong. How about Matthew 11, verse 27? Jesus said, And no one knows the Son except the Father. And then He says, Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. He's not simply talking about mental ascent. No one knows me like the Father knows me. We have a unique relationship that no one else has or could even comprehend. And, and not only do, do I know the Father in a unique way, He knows me in a unique way. We have this unique relationship. So it's astounding when the Son says, Why have you forsaken me? And as I've said so many times, He's not posing it in the form of a question because He doesn't know the answer. It's because of the profound nature of what's happening. So under the eerie shroud of darkness, we have Him crying those words. It's astounding because of who He is. It's astounding furthermore, if you'd like another reason, it's astounding because of what was happening to him. Jesus, the sinless one, is being forsaken by his father. That's what's happening to him. Jesus, the rock, is being crushed by his father, Isaiah 53. Jesus, the sinless one, is being judged as a sinner. Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb, is being slain. Jesus, the righteous, is being treated like the unrighteous. Jesus, the perfect law keeper, Matthew 5, is being treated like the law breaker. Jesus, the blessed son, is bearing our sins in his body, 1 Peter chapter 2 says. And let's just think about that a little bit more for a second. Jesus is bearing our sins in his body, 1 Peter chapter 2, substitutionary atonement. Remember, don't just think about yourself. Remember that by Jesus dying, He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's not just dying for people who would come after the cross. He's not just dying for people who are living during that time. He's dying for everyone who would ever believe. Even backward, right? If you don't think that's the case, if you think somehow people could be justified just by doing animal sacrifices, ultimately they couldn't be. And if you're thinking that way, read the book of Hebrews sometime. There has to be a perfect atoning sacrifice, a like sacrifice. The only way any Old Testament saint could ever be an Old Testament saint is if Christ were dying to pay for their sins. So we become more and more impressed with the atoning work of Christ. We understand more and more why he's saying, My God, my God! We understand why he's being forsaken. You see, we're impressed if we were to think, Jesus died for me personally. Okay, that's true. There's personal benefit. I can say that. And that's impressive because I am a sinner. And I deserve to be judged for my sin because God has said all along, If you sin, you will die. And then we think, well, but that's for everyone who would ever believe after Jesus. That's too short-sighted. Read the book of Hebrews. goes backward, which causes us to just be all the more amazed. What he's experiencing here is absolutely astounding. I love the way Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, which I would commend to you, I love the way he puts it. 
He says, God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about the punishment in generations past. He had forgiven sins, yes, in the Old Testament, and stored up His righteous anger against those sins. But at the cross, the fury of all that stored up wrath against sin was unleashed against God's own Son. It's no wonder that Jesus offers that Psalm 22 inspired cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's experiencing there is just amazing. It's astounding not just because of what he's experiencing. It's astounding because of what it tells us about the righteousness of God. And if you would turn with me to Romans, I would love for you to see this. I would like to reference Romans a couple of times. And I realize we're just taking a small section of Scripture this morning. But there's just so much. And and, and the rest of the Bible gives us the commentary on what happens. And I want us to see some of it. When Jesus is crying, what he's crying there on the cross, as he is experiencing God's judgment on our behalf, we learn a lot about God's righteousness. Please, when you see the cross, when you read the Scripture and you think about Christ dying, the just for the unjust, and and you're, you're meditating upon these things, please think about lots of different things. But please don't forget to see in the cross the righteousness of God. You're supposed to see the righteousness of God. I know you are because of what Romans chapter 3 says. Look at Romans 3, and in verse 24, we see that it's talking about Christ because it says Christ Jesus. And then verse 25 says, this is a powerful reality. Verse 25, whom God, no doubt the Father, because it's talking about the Son, displayed publicly, that's talking about what we're looking at in Matthew 27, it's a public, as a propitiation, an atonement, a satisfying of wrath, How? In His blood, that is, in His death, through faith. And then look at the last part. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. It demonstrates lots of different things, this Jesus on the cross. But please don't let it escape your notice that it does, in fact, demonstrate the righteousness of God. And we tend to not think about the righteousness of God. We tend to think... That there is no righteousness of God. We tend to think, and so we want to write new books that are unorthodox because we forget that God is righteous. Remember, one of the reasons God nails His Son to the cross, one of the reasons the Son voluntarily went to the cross, is so that you would be overwhelmed, and I would be overwhelmed with the fact that God is not some sort of genie that He is not Santa Claus, that He is not senile, that He's not going to let bygones be bygones. He is righteous altogether. And He has said from the very beginning, if you sin, you will die. And if God says, but you know what? I'm going to let you go this time. He's not righteous. He wants us to see that He is a righteous God. And when He says, The wages of sin is death. We see a glaring example in the death of His own Son. He is punishing sin. We're going to talk about the love of God. But I would submit to you that we haven't a clue about the love of God. 
if we don't first come to grips with the righteousness of God. In fact, well, we'll get there momentarily. You say, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Making a big deal out of it because if we see the righteousness of God, we'll appreciate the love of God. And if we see that, then we'll want to praise God and we'll want to worship God. Remember, as horrible as Jesus' physical sufferings were, and I'm not trying to downplay them, the, the, the crown of thorns that insulted Him, the spitting on Him, the, the, the flogging, to the point where Isaiah says He was marred more than any man. Those things are real and those things are horrible. But the tendency is, is, to see, is to see those things as sort of the worst part. The movies capture those things and somehow that's the apex of the horrific things, uh, of the horrific thing that happened to Christ. I would submit to you that at this point in time, and I would be in great company when I say this, Jesus probably isn't even thinking about the physical pain. He is now experiencing the pain of all pain. He is there experiencing the pain of concentrated, undiluted wrath. The wrath that I deserve, the wrath that you deserve. Isn't it interesting now that He doesn't say Father like He does over and over again? He's not standing there. He's not hanging there with that kind of relationship in mind. He's crying out to Him as one who is distant and separated. God. Remember too that many people died on crosses. Many people throughout history have died horrific deaths. What sets Jesus' death apart from every other death is the fact that it's a spiritual reality of Him dying and satisfying God's righteousness or His justice. It's an awful thing. And I mean that in both senses. A.W. Pink was so struck by this, and I love what he said in light of this. Listen to these words. Here, in the cry of Christ, we may see the dreadful anger. Here, may we see the dreadful anger of a sin-avenging God. Not all the thunderbolts of divine judgment which were let loose in Old Testament times, not all the vials of wrath which shall yet be poured forth on an apostate Christendom during the unparalleled horrors of the Great Tribulation, not all the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth of the damned in the lake of fire ever gave or ever will give such a demonstration of God's inflexible justice and ineffable holiness of His infinite hatred of sin as did the wrath of God which flamed against His own Son on the cross. I love the way he says it. God's inflexible justice. Because that's what the cross shows us. It's in this light, in light of the cry, in light of the dissing, to borrow popular terminology, of the substitutionary atonement right now in vogue. I couldn't agree with R.C. Sproul more in his new book on the cross. It's not a new idea, but he nails it in a simplified way like R.C. can. We tend to say, he says, to overlook the characteristic of God's nature that makes the atonement absolutely necessary. His righteousness. You see, if you don't see God as righteous, 
you won't see Christ's substitutionary death as absolutely necessary. You won't see it as a big deal. You can write books that write the thing off. But if you really come to grips with the fact that He's a righteous God and what He says He will do, oh, we need Christ to die for us. We need Him to be judged for us because there's no escaping His justice apart from that. You know what else is astounding? Not just His righteousness, but when we understand the righteousness, and I've already mentioned this, it's His love. If you're in Romans 3 still, or even if you're not, if you go to Romans 5, this is absolutely amazing as well. We're not only seeing His justice or His righteousness, we're also seeing His love. But I would remind you that Romans 3 comes before Romans 5 on purpose. He doesn't lead with, Jesus died to show God's great love for us. That's true. But it doesn't really make that much sense. Because we think, well, you know what? I'm pretty lovely. And you know, why wouldn't God do that for me? I'm a pretty good guy. And you know what? God is senile anyway. It's all the portrayals of Him. You know, He's kind of like a grandpa, but a little bit easier to manipulate. Well, on the Old Testament, you know, He was righteous, but we're in the New Testament now. Well, that's hogwash. I can think of other words, but that's probably the best, safest word to use. Romans 3, it's to demonstrate His righteousness. Awe-inspiring. God hates sin so much that He would do that to His Son? Oh, but, but it's not just His righteousness. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God, the one who is righteous and just, who demonstrates that, demonstrates also His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that awesome? See, His his justice is awesome in a scary sort of way. It's awe-inspiring. But then then His love is awesome in a whole other level. We say, "This this is great. And I'm more impressed. If he is this kind of righteous God with inflexible justice and ineffable wrath, and as Pink puts it so nicely, if that's really true, and then I learn that he also loves me, oh, I will praise him. I will praise him with all of my heart. I will praise him with all of my being. I will live for him. I will worship him like I would never otherwise. But if you don't really think God is righteous, it's no wonder your praise is flat. It's, it's, it's no wonder you're not really motivated to re- live the Christian life. Somehow you're thinking God is not righteous. And when you hear about God's love, it's a self-esteem kind of thing. No, it's not. Please meditate on that. You look at the cross, Romans 3. God there is to the point with His Son, who yes, went there voluntarily, to the point where the Son is saying to the Father, Why? And it's because God is lambasting him with all of his wrath that has been stored up for millennia. And that should cause you to be unsettled and troubled because you know what? You're a sinner too. And that's awful. But if you meditate on that and you keep reading in Romans and you get to Romans 5 and you say, He's doing that because He loves me. And you say, that's awesome. What a God. I mean, this, this, this takes care of everything. This, this takes care of absolutely everything. 
This is what the Bible unpacks for the rest of the Bible. This means securing our redemption. This means securing our propitiation. This means atonement. This means imputation of Christ's righteousness. This means salvation, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, glorification, and who knows what else? God does. This means the death of legalism. Because we're not busy trying to bribe God. How stupid would that be? He's righteous and He said, if you sin, you'll die. He didn't say, if you sin, you'll have to give me bribes through religion. No, when He judges His Son and His Son satisfies His just wrath, legalism? Why would I waste my life with that and insult God as if somehow I had to do something that Jesus couldn't do? No. This means freedom, real freedom for us. He, he, he buys freedom for us. This means hope, a secure hope. This means seeing Christ is more glorious than anything and anyone ever. As I've already said, this means igniting our praise. This means motivation. This is awesome. See the cross for what it is. And it will change everything. Well, there's a little break in the intensity, at least, in the narrative. Let's go back to Matthew 27. But as we see a little break in the narrative, it's an illustration, I believe, of of, of just how perverted, apart from God's grace, we are. It's an illustration of how you can can stare at the cross and, and you can know Bible verses... And you can hear Jesus cry, and you can still mock Him. Look at verse 47. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, that is, Jesus cry, began saying, this, this man is calling for Elijah. Maybe because it sounded like that. More likely because the Jews associated the coming of Messiah with Elijah coming. Remember, Elijah didn't die a physical death. He was caught up to heaven, and so that might be on their mind. But I don't think they're all there just waiting, anticipating with positive motives and attitudes because when we keep reading, I read it as a negative. What we don't have, and by the way, you can write it in your margin if you need to. Some of your Bibles probably already put it in there. Right before verse 48, you would have, uh, if you wanted to be chronological, John 19, verse 28, Jesus says, I am thirsty. And verse 48 of Matthew 27 is the response. Look at verse 48. Immediately one of them ran... And taking the sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. He doesn't say much about the motives there. And there's debate. Do these people have good motives or bad motives? I think when you look at all the gospel accounts and put the data together, I don't think the motives are right. I wouldn't want to stake my salvation on it. But I don't think the motives are right. Earlier on chronologically, Luke 23 verse 36 says, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Seems to be a similar kind of idea in my opinion. And if that's true, what we see are people who were familiar with the Bible, looking at the cross, looking at Jesus in the flesh, hearing Jesus speak, And they mock Him. From that, there's a principle worth taking home with you. You can look at the cross, hear Jesus speak, 
no Bible verses, and it still won't change your heart. Well, let's come to the second cry. A second cry that tells us so much about Jesus that it takes the rest of the Bible to explain it. In verse 50, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. He died. Mark's account says He breathed His last. But I want you to take a second look at verse 50, if you would, with me. I love the way Matthew purposely highlights what happened and yielded up his spirit. If you've been reading Matthew, it just fits perfectly. Because sort of silently written across every page of Matthew over and over again is the word sovereignty. That Jesus is in charge. And if I've said it once, I've said it at least a dozen times, Jesus is in charge. And He is in charge here. Even in the way Matthew words it, He yielded up His Spirit. Something He does. We, we've seen that He didn't go to Jerusalem before it was time to go to Jerusalem because He's sovereignly in control of all the events. We see that, that He didn't go to the cross until it was time, but once it was time, He was absolutely going to go to the cross. He made sure that other people didn't acknowledge publicly Him as Messiah and make a public big deal out of it until it was time for it to happen. He went according to His own perfect plan, and here, as He dies, He dies and gives up His own spirit according to His own sovereign design, because He's in control, because He's the sovereign Redeemer, and He is accomplishing our perfect redemption as one who is in control. And if you think I've been reading too much into it, it's because I've got too much Bible in my head. For the sake of time, you might want to jot down a couple of passages and just listen for now. John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay down my, uh, lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. Was Jesus murdered? Trick question. He absolutely was murdered, but he absolutely did not die apart from His own sovereign control, giving up His own life. He is in charge. Let me say it one more time for effect in case I don't do it in the weeks to come. Jesus is in charge. He's in charge of redemption. He's in charge of what He's doing here for us. He's the sovereign King. Therefore, Albert Schweitzer, Nobel Peace Prize winner, medical doctor, Liberal Lutheran pastor couldn't have had it more wrong when he said, This cry by Jesus was proof positive that Jesus died in disillusionment. You want to bet? <laughs> He's in charge, He's in control, He's worthy of our praise. He's dying an effectual death on our behalf and we love Him for it. 
I want to wrap all this up by making two conclusions, two statements that I hope you make too, I hope we can make as a church. And I will invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians once again. How great is it for us to not only have the gospel accounts, but to have the rest of the Bible to explain the gospel accounts so that we can get it right and not fumble around and wonder why Jesus did what He did and and what did it really do and, and what should we do with this message? That we can leave our creativity aside. And we can leave uh, the latest and greatest trend and philosophy aside and we can have a sure hope. We can know what to do with the cross. 1 Corinthians, if you turn to the very end in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What do we do with this? Well, Well, we learn what to do with this based upon what the commentary on the Bible says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 3, I love it so. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So we, we can conclude, number one, the most important thing in the whole world is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Think of all the great things Paul talked about, even in 1 Corinthians. And you say, what's the greatest thing he ever said? Well, if we were to try to survey people and based upon the thing we talk about the most, it's the love chapter. Chapter 13. And I love the love chapter. I think it's all true, inspired by God. should be emphasized. But the greatest thing the Apostle Paul ever talked about ever lived for, the thing that he prized above everything else, and the same thing that you should prize and I should prize if we're Christians, that Christ died for our sins, right? The most important thing on the planet to us is not the example of Jesus, as great as that was. It's the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. He died for our sins. Please, my friends, dear Christians, make it your number one priority above everything else. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Like never before, that needs to be owned. And why do we own it? Why do we, why do we hold on to it? And why do we say this is the most important thing on the planet? Not because it's the vogue thing in evangelicalism right now. It's not. Because, right there in the verse, according to the Scriptures, God says. I love that. I love that. We as a church need to have this as the most important thing, the heartbeat of the church. We're into other things. We're committed to other things. We want those to be biblical things. But above everything else, we want to do everything that we do ultimately under, as Eric Raymond said this morning when he was making announcements, under the shadow of the cross. The love chapter, chapter 13, is under the shadow of the cross. The one another's under the shadow of the cross because it's all about this first importance. It's the cross.
We've got to own that. We've got to know that. Well, complementing that is chapter 2, if you would just turn there. So, conclusion number one, well, the gospel is the most important thing in the whole world. The substitutionary atonement of Christ is the most important thing in the whole world to us. Well, complementing that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, is this resolve. This should be our resolve as a church, as Omaha Bible Church. This should be your resolve as a Christian, my resolve as a Christian, no doubt my resolve as a pastor. He says, for I determined, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What a great and simple and profound purpose statement. If it's the most important thing in the whole world, we should resolve ourselves to put it as the priority above everything else everything else it's our resolution it's our commitment doesn't mean Paul didn't talk about other things because he did but they're under the shadow of the cross right doesn't mean he lacked the ability to talk about other things no he didn't he had the ability to the point where if you read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 I'm going to have to use self control here because I'm going to start preaching another sermon Paul knew that it wasn't vogue to talk about the substitutionary atonement. You see, this stuff coming out of the trash heap that I thumbed through recently is not new. Paul knew that if he gave them Jesus Christ, God's Son, crucified in our place, bearing the wrath of God so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be justified, sanctified, glorified. If He gave them that message, they would say, that guy's an idiot. He's a fool. That's what's so powerful about 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. He resolved to preach that way anyway. He made up his mind to do it anyway because it's the power of God unto salvation. The Bible reads like it was written yesterday. The Bible reads like it was written today. The same issues. The names have been changed to protect the guilty. It's the same issues. Because there's nothing more humbling to the sinner than realizing that they deserve what Jesus got. But having borne our sins, we then offer nothing to God. It's all Christ. Please commit yourself to that. Please. As a church, we need to be sold out to that for the next who knows how long, as many years as God gives us. As Christian individuals, we've got to be radically committed to that. Own the cross. Know the cross. Go deep with the cross. It's all about that because it's all about the glory of Christ. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this awesome, awesome opportunity we have to focus on that which is more important than anything else. And we love Christ. And we love Christ because He loved us first. We love Christ because of all that He did for us. We want to live our lives for the glory of Christ. Lord, we would ask that you would continue to raise up folks who would boast about Christ and only about Christ, that we could make an impact for the glory of Christ in the city of Omaha and beyond the city of Omaha, that we would commit ourselves 
to seeing it as the most important thing in the whole world and then it would be our number one priority, not just for me as a pastor, but for us as a church and for us as Christians. God, please make it so. Help us to not play games with life. Help us to not play games with church. But to live for what really counts. Make it so, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.